What do you find appealing in this world? What really excites you? There's certainly some activity, some location, some relationship that ignites a fire in you. It might be going on a date. It might be gathering with friends or returning home or the anticipation of seeing a grandchild. Or maybe it's a game, or a match, or a race. Some athletic event, and you're, you're pumped to see it or excited to participate in it. Perhaps it's a concert, a seminar, a hobby, a vacation. Traveling to a favorite destination. Something that really excites you, and you find so naturally appealing. Such desires can become inordinate, They can become idolatrous, and obviously then we need to manage them, but there's nothing wrong about these things as such. But then there are the kinds of activities and places and relationships which are innately sinful. Last week we visited one such activity, location, and relationship. In Proverbs chapter 7, if you want to make your way back there, In the text of Scripture, Proverbs 7, the the father teaches his son about the allure of the seductress. She is a woman of smooth speech. She is attractive. She is available. She is sensually aggressive, and she wants you. You will find her appeal nearly irresistible. And if the son, in this instruction, if he's not wise... If he lacks moral skill and he lacks godly discernment, he will end up in a place with a person involved in activity that will thrill him for the moment, but destroy him in the end. And so the father frankly and passionately warns and thus arms his son against the devastating effects of getting entangled with the adulteress. Know this, understand this, be prepared for this, avoid this woman. Now for us, the situation of course is very different. There's a narrow application, a certain cultural context, and even discussion here in Proverbs chapter 7. We need to apply beyond the confines of this particular discussion. Your seductress may be the image of a woman on a computer screen. Or your seductress may be a career. It might be a hobby, a pastime, a travel destination, a child, a life goal, an entertainment experience, self. We are surrounded by legitimate interests that can become inordinate. And we are surrounded by illegitimate attractions that lure us away from God. And destroy the foundations of our walk with Him. In Proverbs chapter 8, God encourages us to crave wisdom and abandon ourselves to her attractiveness. The personification of wisdom in chapter 8 is hardwired to the account of the seductress in chapter 7. In chapter 7, the Father warns against the appeal of the prostitute 
In chapter 8, he basically says, now here is a maiden you can devour and never suffer regret. This appeal, there's nothing in it that's negative. There's nothing in it that will destroy. The appeal of wisdom is made here in this chapter, and it is not like the seductress, which we find in verse 13 of chapter 7, that she seizes him, kisses him, with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I've paid my vows, so now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him, and he won't come back until the moon is full. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with illicit pleasures. In light of that context, Proverbs chapter 7, Proverbs chapter 8 sends this message. Come, take your fill of wisdom. Delight yourself in her embrace. Clearly, there's personification here as we understand wisdom, but it is an offer of a woman you can get involved with. And every one of us, seen, of course, uniquely in this context, in this orientation, a father to a son, preparing him for adult life. But as we apply that beyond now, we look into the face of wisdom as an appeal we should pursue with all of our soul. The appeal of wisdom on the street, we find in the first 11 verses here. The appeal of wisdom on the street. Verse 1, does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud. Let me pause here to say, I do not believe that wisdom is to be taken as an attribute of God in this chapter. Wisdom is an attribute of God, but that's not the point here. It's not an attribute of God that's being personified. I do not believe, secondly, that wisdom should be taken here as Jesus Christ. Jesus is our wisdom, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30, but Paul is not in 1 Corinthians 1 drawing from Proverbs chapter 8. Rather, there he is contrasting Jesus, our wisdom, with worldly wisdom. Now, undoubtedly, there's connections there, and we want to draw those out particularly next week. But simply said, we should understand that wisdom in Proverbs chapter 8 is personification. Wisdom pictured as a woman, and wisdom being skillful living and biblical discernment pictured in this way, illustrated for us in this way. So we're to see a woman, but we've got to really think past that in our literary capacities to know it's not an actual woman, and it's not the attribute of God that's under particular consideration, or even Jesus Christ, but rather this call to skillful living and biblical discernment. Well, ask yourself, what is this woman doing? Just in these three verses that we've read, what is she doing? She's raising her voice 
She's declaring a message. Where is she stationed? She's stationed in the busiest, most prominent spot in the city. She stations herself where she can be most easily seen and heard. Think of that. It's significant. She stations herself where she can appeal to the greatest number of people as she, in a sense, hawks her wares out there in the marketplace. Madam Wisdom does not cower in a corner. She does not sequester herself in a cave in some remote wilderness, and you have to go on a long journey to find her if you can. Wisdom takes her stand at ground zero of life. The city gate, this is where politics take place. This is where business is transacted, hammered out, where justice is served. This is where merchants hawk their wares and where consumers purchase goods. This is where the people come in and go out from the city. That's where she stands, in a prominent place, raising her voice and appealing to everybody on street level. Hers is not the dull tones of learned discourse in the academy. Hers is not rehearsed rhetorical performance. Hers is not the intoned strains of religious liturgy. Hers is a voice that rings out with urgent appeal in the marketplace. Where the adulteress worked in the dusk and lured a young man into the privacy of her home off the street where they could not be interrupted. We see in contrast, Madam Wisdom stands in broad daylight on the street. She has absolutely nothing to hide. And what is her message? Verse 4, as she raises her voice, she says, To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. She does not address intellectuals. Her appeal is to everyone. She appeals, you see there in verse 5, to the simple ones. The Hebrew word refers to individuals who are open-minded to both good and evil. There is swayed by one as the other. So there's voices out there appealing to us to do what is wrong. She raises her voice and says, listen to me instead. She appeals to the simple ones. She appeals, verse 5, to the fools. The Hebrew word means stupid or dullard. Of course, again, speaking in the, sense, in the moral sense of the term. In chapter 1, wisdom mocked moral fools. Here she offers another appeal of grace as she calls out to them. She narrows her address, writes one, to the malformed, uncommitted, and untutored, gullible people. She invites them into her education program. She continues to articulate her message in verse 6. What is it? Here, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. We can't say that, can we? But wisdom can. From the lips of the seductress come smooth words that are morally twisted and corrupt. They lead the young man away from the purposes of God. 
but in wisdom's speech there is nothing that is so twisted. Many may reject her voice, but she can herald her message from the housetops without shame, without apology, and she does. Verse 9, she continues, They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Not everyone will see the worth of wisdom's counsel. In fact, you may have come today into this place and you are really truly in a position of resistance against the truth of God. You don't like to hear it. You don't want to know what God thinks about your life. You're defensive. You're self-congratulating. Not everyone will see the worth of wisdom's counsel, but those who grasp her message realize that that they are all straight to him who understands. They realize that these words are straight. They're not twisted. They're not crooked. They are right to those who find knowledge. Verse 9. Those who do find her counsel right, that means I think it's that it, they know that it's true, and I think it also means that it's, they know that it will steer them on the right path. It is the truth, and it is the right direction in life. And they grasp that. They sense this. They understand it. The adulteress in Proverbs chapter 7, we find in her company, verse 27, her house is the way to Sheol, to death going down to the chambers of death. Wisdom's counsel is not destructive. It is life-giving, and thus it is absolutely priceless. In the mercies of God, there are some who understand this. And so wisdom continues and speaks of the priceless nature of her words. Verse 10, Take my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Even though wisdom appeals to common people, she has exquisite value. She's not cheap, though she's on the street. Now think of this phrase. All that you desire cannot compare with her. All that you desire cannot compare with her worth. Do you believe that? I mean, honestly, do we really believe that? Do you believe that no desire in your life can compare with the value of God's counsel? Our lack of affection for God's truth and the skill of life and discernment that it produces evidences how blind we are to the fact that God's Word is our life. If we really get it, we should be as excited about grasping God's truth as we are about every other passion in our lives. Now, there will certainly be different kinds of expression. We don't necessarily jump up and down as we would should our team win the championship or should we be, win a free trip to that place we always wanted to go. There would be a, an emotional response that's certainly different, but in the value of our heart, would we not be willing to place down all of the desires of our heart and exchange them, if necessary, for the Word of God? It's of utmost value. His counsel is of utmost value to us. If we really get it, we should be as excited about grasping His truth 
as we are about anything else. And I, I wonder, I, I mean, there's, there's room to grow here, isn't there? This is a challenging passage because I don't think there's a single word in it that we haven't considered already maybe several times in the book of Proverbs. But let's come back to the realities of this counsel to us, which we know very well. Do we really operate this way in our life? When you read the Bible on your own privately, do you read it with the sense that God's counsel is of exquisite worth? Now, I may talk to some here and you say, I don't read the Bible on my own. There's an evidence there you don't value wisdom as you should. During family devotions, let me speak specifically to young people here. When the Bible is read in your home, does your response to the Word indicate that you believe God's truth is of utmost value? That it's more important than any other desire that you may have at that moment? When we come to church on the Lord's Day, let's just take that as a, for instance, when we come on the Lord's Day, on Sunday mornings to church, do we come with this Spirit? The Spirit that says the counsels of God are of exquisite worth. I'm coming to hear the words of God and to be challenged to adjust my life to its counsel. I should want this. I should long for this. And frankly, we don't, as we should. We know this. And we know here then is a word from God all that I desire cannot compare with God's truth. That's the reality. And it is a lifelong quest to bring our lives in sync with that reality. But search your own heart. You know there's a coldness, there's a dullness to the truth of God. There's a willingness that we have to run after other counsel as long as it fixes what we're dealing with. Where is the true sense of the exquisite worth of the counsel of God in our lives? Let's be rebuked. Let's be corrected on this point. And may we order our lives such that God's word is of exquisite worth. That there is a genuine excitement to know the counsels and the instruction of the Lord. The appeal of wisdom on the street we find here in verses 1-11 through 11, as she announces her message and calls others to come to her and to see her value. Secondly, at verse 12, there seems to be something of a significant shift here in the text. And we find now the accomplishments of wisdom in the world. We're looking at it in a sense historically here. What does wisdom do in the real world? It's not just this ethereal concept of wisdom out there, but wisdom actually affects things in life. Now, wisdom will continue, should continue to announce her worth, but we'll note that the text bends as we move our way down through these next verses toward the accomplishments of wisdom, what it gets done in the world. And we note, first of all, that wisdom serves the civil order. It serves the civil order. Verse 12 I wisdom dwell with prudence, I find knowledge and discretion. Prudence, this is a jewel. So let's take this jewel in hand and appreciate it. Prudence is the shrewd, skillful application of knowledge in unique situations. In the Hebrew text, it's often used in a negative sense. Somebody that's really shrewd and skillful at doing wrong things. 
But here, of course, in a positive sense, wisdom dwells with prudence. My counsel, says God, my counsel will help you to be shrewd and skillful in the application of knowledge to unique situations. Have you ever applied really good principles at the wrong time in the wrong situation? Prudence helps us not do that. And have you ever done something really dumb in a certain situation? Prudence certainly helps us not to do that. It's wisely applying the skills that God would give us morally in the right situation. We find then the word discernment here. Discernment or discretion is the ability to construct wise plans and follow through on those plans. It's the opposite of a morally reckless life. Just letting life bounce around like, 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 a, like a, in, a, in a pinball machine and just moving from situation to situation. Discernment says, here's a wise plan and here's how we'll bring it about. So in this verse, we see wisdom pursuing wisdom, don't we? Isn't that what she says? I dwell with prudence. I find knowledge and I find discretion. What wisdom calls us to do, she does in a sense. Not surprisingly then, she fears God, the beginning of wisdom. Verse 13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. All right, the counsel of God, what does it look like? How does it work itself out in skillful living, in wise planning? What, how, does it, how does it look? Proud, arrogant people despise authority and speak corruptly. corruptly. Wisdom tracks in a radically different direction. Wisdom is humble and honest, God-fearing and straight-shooting. It avoids the kind of attitudes and the kind of words that cause relational disruption and ruin opportunities. None of that's in wisdom. And we leave those kinds of things behind us in the dust as we pursue the path of God's counsel in our life. Verse 14, she continues, I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight and I have strength. We've encountered all of these words except the Hebrew word behind, now here translated strength. I have strength, I'm strong, it's muscular. The Hebrew word actually speaks of valor to confront a strong adversary in a skillful way. Strength is, is the concept here in the Hebrew text of not backing down when we should not back down. Having a backbone, standing up to what we should. That skill, in the best of situations then, and here's where we've been tracking, it serves the civil order. It's this courage to stand up and meet challenges and meet enemies that's essential for life to work. And it does in God's mercy in this world. Verse 14, I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me kings reign. And rulers decree what is just. By me princes rule and nobles all who govern justly. Or you can see the uh, marginal reading there as the manuscripts are divergent here. It might just be all who govern on the earth. It really doesn't make any difference uh, theologically to the understanding of the verse. But by me princes rule nobles govern is the idea. You kind of 
look at these verses and say, if only, right? <laughs> if only our governmental leaders would lead with wisdom. But in fact, on some level, in common grace, they do. Psalm 2 says that the nations rage against the Lord, and we see that everywhere. We see policies enacted, we see governmental leaders doing things that are in direct conflict with God's will and purpose. But under the influence of common grace, history also records many great diplomats and heroic kings who rule with skill and issue wise decrees and stand up against the enemy that would destroy a culture, a civilization. This is one of the many accomplishments of wisdom in our world. Wisdom is given to believers and unbelievers. To the unbeliever, it is given in the common grace and mercy of God. It is not in its fullest sense. It is not all that it should be. But thank God there's something there. That there are leaders and rulers in this world that do use wisdom. They do stand up to the enemy. They do issue wise policies. And life goes on. It is amazing how this world continues to operate with all of the sin and self-centeredness that's rooted in us. At least in this context, we can say that wisdom is to be credited. In the common grace of God, kings and rulers and princes and nobles govern by these virtues that God gives. But how much more then for those of us who are His followers? When we look at the accomplishment of wisdom in ordering society, ultimately such wisdom should be found in us. And ultimately, as we look to the rulers of this world and all of their sin, it points to the ultimate ruler, Jesus Christ, who from Jerusalem's throne will rule with strength and wisdom. The same Hebrew word is used prophetically of Christ in Isaiah 11 and verse 2. He will be the ultimate ruler who rules by wisdom. So wisdom serves the civil order. In this world, this is one thing that wisdom is accomplishing. The second thing is that wisdom enriches her followers. Now this is no news to us in her speech. This is very common in what wisdom is saying. But it enriches her followers. Verse 17, I love those who love me. And those who seek me diligently find me. Wisdom longs to be found and loves those who seek her. We must seek her diligently, not because she's hiding, but because of our sin and human weakness. This is a love affair that produces no shame. This is a love affair that produces nothing but reward. Verse 18, riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. I think the wealth in view here, and commentators seem to be in general agreement, is really literal wealth. Although the benefits of wisdom certainly stretch far beyond, and I think we'll see that in the verses that follow a bit. But wisdom points the way to, and let's, let's think of the book of Proverbs and what we know of it. Wisdom, skillful living with biblical discernment, will point us to work hard. It will point us to say no to get-rich-quick schemes. 
it will point us to frugality, to wise planning, to fair treatment of others, to shrewd business dealings. And in the end, that naturally leads to physical prosperity. Now, it is not a promise that everyone will get wealthy who pursues wisdom. In fact, there may be circumstances in life that will demand that we remain poor the rest of our days. That doesn't mean we, we, we're not wise necessarily. But as a general principle, when you apply hard work, frugality, wise planning, fair treatment, shrewd business dealings, and you avoid the get-rich-quick schemes, the natural result is prosperity. Some measure of wealth that comes through the application of wisdom. We know in the book of Proverbs that there is a way of amassing wealth in, by other means. By deception, by manipulation, by intimidation, by these get-rich-quick schemes and other corrupt practices to gain material wealth at the cost of others. You might get filthy rich that way, but there will be no joy in it. It won't be the path of wisdom. The path of wisdom goes this direction, verse 19. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the path of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. What does wisdom get done in the world? There's more to see, but what it gets done is it provides wisdom to the order of society and it enriches and prospers those who apply it generally understood of course proverbially understood but wisdom has effects it gets things done and what it gets done evidences the blessing of God and is free of shame it's all good and we can go for this wisdom without regret. Prosperity may be found on the path of wisdom. It may not. But if prosperity is there, it will be an aspect of the true life that is found on this path, as verse 35 will bring out. Whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. It's not the wealth that's the goal. It's the walk with God that is the goal, but wisdom is the path to both. Now, this chapter we really need to consider as a whole. And as you can see, there's a lot more verses to come. We're going to reserve time to pursue a more careful investigation of the rest of the chapter next week. There is, I think, a natural break here between 21 and 22, and so we'll take that break at this point. As we hit the pause button then at verse 21, let's stop to meditate on a few observations. Let's, let's take what we've seen once again and let's soak in these themes for a while. Next week, Lord willing, as we move through the second half of Proverbs 8, there's a different orientation about wisdom's treasures. We'll look at that and consider that. Not so much what it's doing in history now, but moving back even before history and before time as we see its exquisite worth and importance in this world. 
But meditating for a few moments on what we've seen, well, what have you seen? Observation number one is pretty clear to any that have been part of this series or that know the book of Proverbs at all. We see again the repetitive nature of Proverbs, don't we? As I mentioned earlier, I don't think there's a single word here, essentially, that's not been sounded already in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 1, verses 20 through 33, we find essentially this very same speech. What's the point? Does God just figure that we forget? Yes. And that we need it to be repeated. While adolescent children tend to roll their eyes and sigh at the repetitive nature of parental instruction, the book of Proverbs encourages educational repetition. Now this can be overdone. But we must remember that because it's been said once does not mean that it should not be said again and again and again. This lesson is too important not to repeat. The pursuit of wisdom is so vital to our lives. God does not apologize for hammering the message home and saying once again, hear the voice of wisdom. And unless we want to stay stuck at age 14 in our spiritual immaturity, we must learn to appreciate the value of the repetitive instructions of God's counsels. He says it again and again and again because we need to hear it again and again and again. Observation two, getting wisdom is a response to an invitation as much as it is a quest. Now that's significant. It's not news to us. I've sounded this point before as we've applied different texts. But get it again. Getting wisdom is a response to an invitation as much as it is a quest. We are called to diligently seek wisdom in chapter 2. I hope that went through your brain there. Wait a minute. What about Proverbs 2? Isn't it a quest there? Dig for it as for silver and for gold. That's right. But notice in this text, the orientation doesn't stop at go get wisdom. It is a glorious revelation to learn here that wisdom seeks us. Living life with moral skill and biblical insight is not the unique conquest of highly motivated, intellectually gifted people. Wisdom issues its appeal to everyone on the street. Wisdom is calling you, calling me, calling us whoever we are. It lifts its voice and calls us in. I'm thankful for that. I think in the pursuit of wisdom, I, I believe I've learned a lot. And I think I've learned to think differently than I did before, but I guarantee I wasn't a, a good recruit at the beginning of it. I don't know if I am now, but I know it's changed me. But you say, I, I'm not, I, don't, I don't have that intellectual orientation. It's not what it's about. I, don't, I, find, I find it really hard to continue to search and to seek the truth that comes through written text and the counsel of others. We all do. But God takes us and He bends us and He matures us and shapes us as we realize this wisdom is calling out in appeal and saying, come to me. Her appeal is broad, it is loud, and it is public. 
So I think we should really consider ourselves here saying there's somebody talking to me. Wisdom is calling out to me. Will you respond? Will you heed? Will you listen to wisdom's call? Observation three, very much connected to the preceding, but moral skill and godly discernment is achieved by responding to an external source of counsel, not by tapping inner sources of light. Very same point the last two sermons. But we need to hear it again, get it again. Wisdom, moral skill, godly discernment, is achieved by responding to an external source of counsel. A word from outside, not the word from inside. Robert Browning, 19th century English poet and playwright, said this. It's a little confusing, but concentrate. We're getting to the end here. He said this, Truth lies within ourselves. It takes no rise from outward things whatever you may believe. There is an inmost center in all of us where truth abides in fullness. And to know rather consists in opening out a way whence the imprisoned splendor may escape. What's the point? The whole thing is let the light out. It's in there. Tap it. Go in deep. Find it in you. And then let it out. That's the key. That's the orientation. You just haven't gone deep enough into yourself to find that light. There's a lot of muck and darkness and dirt perhaps you're finding because other people have harmed you and done bad things to you. But look down deep past it all and you'll find that inner light and the idea is to let it out. Be who you were made to be. Find within you the fullness that's there. It's an imprisoned splendor, he says, so that it will escape. That's the ticket, not finding an entry for light that comes from without. I, I honestly believe in virtually any Christian church in America, not all of them, but the vast majority, you could preach Robert Browning and people would say amen and amen. If you turned it a certain way and said it a certain way, that's the message we believe in this culture. It's taught to us at every level. What we don't maybe recognize from that statement is that Browning was kicking against the biblical vision. And he has a lot of followers today in Christian churches. I'm not making this up. One spiritual advisor, a member of an area church that calls itself evangelical in its name, wrote in the local paper recently, and I could quote at great length, I'll read just one phrase. The author says this, One of the very first spiritual principles I learned is that we always have within us everything we need. Evangelical, speaking to unbelievers in our towns. And saying this, here's the spiritual principle you need to grasp. You have everything within you that you need. You just need to get down in through the spiritual darkness to the inner light and let it out. That's the key. And such counsel is in our local papers. It's on every 
network that we see, it's all over because it's what we want to believe. I rejoice to come to a church with people who have gathered here today for worship. We gather here for worship because we have found ourselves spiritually impoverished. We are poor in spirit. We're not finding this inner light within. We realize that we are deficient and we have found salvation and wisdom outside of ourselves. That's what we come to sing about. The rescue has come. It's good news. Not what I've found in me, but what has happened outside of me historically and now meets us in saving grace. We don't find life by looking for light within, but by finding an external light that rescues us from our natural darkness and confusion. In the nitty-gritty of life, this really has significant implications. I believe if we begin, if young people, children, living at home, if you're beginning to grasp the idea of wisdom, then you will begin to grasp little by little that your parents' voice is a source of wisdom. Doesn't mean they're always right, but it means that there's a voice outside of you, a source outside that gives counsel to you that you must grasp. And for those who are adults, we realize as well that there's words from outside, words of admonition that are our life. To look within is very natural to us. But God's Word comes from without, and it comes through the voice of parents, and it comes through the voice of believers in our life. It comes through reading the text of Scripture. It comes through thinking the words of God. But it's a word from outside of us. And ultimately, it is a word delivered by the Word, Jesus Christ, who said, I am the light of the world. I am the light of life. By nature, sinners before God and objects of His just wrath need a deliverance from without. And so Christ, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus Christ, taking on our sin, comes as a rescuer to pay the penalty of our sin, rising from the dead to defeat death, our great enemy. And now He is the source of life and wisdom for those who trust Him for salvation from sin and from judgment. Oriented that way, I look to Him as a Savior, not to myself. I don't look for inner light. I look for upper light from above me, from outside of me, this saving grace in Christ. And I think if we're rightly oriented that way, we will see all of life in that direction, willing to hear the admonition of others, willing to hear the counsel that comes. And many times it's tainted and twisted and doesn't deliver all that it should when it comes from human mouths. But to heed the admonition and ultimately of others and ultimately of God's word is a vital orientation in life. Observation four and our final, just briefly. If we grasp the truth of this text, we will respond by going hard after wisdom. That's as obvious as can be. But if we really get it, we won't go from here and just say, well, another sermon. 
another day. I did my church thing. On to the next thing. If we really face what is said here in this text, we're going to go from this place and say, I must seek external wisdom. For the rest of my life, this is an orientation. It's a desire that I need to develop and nurture within my life. Frankly, there's some that are on a track away from it. And as you go away from that wisdom and that counsel, what you'll be doing is relying on the inner light. You'll be relying on what you think what you want to be the case. You'll find yourself very defensive before the Word of God. You'll find yourself defensive before the counsel of others. For all of us, there are activities and locations and relationships that inspire our interest and ignite our passion. May God grant us the desire of our hearts and ignite in us, by His grace, a burning desire to embrace the counsel of God to align our lives with that counsel. May He enable us to learn and apply His Word, driven by a passion to live with moral skill and biblical discernment. And to do so by responding to rebuke, by responding to correction, by responding to counsel and the truth of God as we receive it in His Word, by seeking wisdom. All of that meaning we will pursue a life of repentance and change. I will know that I must continue to change in response to the external counsel of God. That's a lifelong project. I'm oriented to it. I want to hear the truth. I want to change in light of that truth. That's my life quest. And so when we hear things such as truth lies within ourselves, it takes no rise from outer things We say, no. The wisdom of my life takes rise from Jesus Christ crucified and risen. It takes rise from the counsel of God. I look outward and I receive that Word and I repent of my sin and my twisted orientations in life and I seek to change in light of that Word in response to the external Word of God. By His grace alone. May He do this in us. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, what else do we do but pray? We plead with You and ask that You will do this work in us and so orient our lives. We know, number one, that it radically distinguishes us from the world in which we live. People are ordered to their own world, to defending self, to appealing to their innate, natural responses and to all of us thinking, I know better than others. I pray that You'd rebuke that orientation in us and Father, that by Your mercy, by Your grace, You will help us to be people who respond continually to Your counsel, to the steerage of Your revelation and to the right direction and rebuke that we receive in reading scripture in the teaching and preaching of scripture in the counsel and admonition of one another (coughs) father i pray that we'd be open to that that we'd be growing that way i pray in behalf of our young people it's a hard thing to listen to mom and dad and teachers and leaders everybody telling you that You're not thinking right. 
you're not doing this right, this needs to go this direction, this needs to be corrected, give them courage, give them strength, and help them to see that counsel from outside is life. It's grace. For those of us who are older, walk on our own, teach us to turn away from defensiveness, Teach us to turn away from our own ways and to heed your counsel. Help us to this end. Someone here may not know the wisdom that is in Christ and of his saving grace. I pray that you'd orient that person to seek, even now and today, the salvation that is in Jesus. We lay these requests at your feet and ask that you will transform us by your word and strengthen us for your glory. Through Christ we pray.